Hey everyone, you're about to hear an interview I conducted with Topher Field. Now Topher is a political commentator, he's a YouTube content creator, and he's also a pretty good guy. And here's what he has to say about me. How desperate must people be to be reaching out to just a random stranger on the internet? Topher is going to tell us what life is like living under dictator Dan in Melbourne. He's going to talk about COVID-19 and he's also going to be talking about water mismanagement in Victoria. So stick around. Thanks for coming on the show. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and your life in political commentary so far? Oh, goodness. Well, thanks, Randall. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's good to be here and always, uh, always very, very happy to, to have a chat with people like yourself. Um, we actually met because you reached out to me, uh, I, th- I believe, as a result of coming across my work uh, as a political commentator and you wanted to interview me for a wonderful documentary that you did that I do highly recommend. So that's how we kind of met. Uh, I began in political commentary getting on towards 12 years ago now, and it really was an accident that I sort of fell into it. I've been involved in acting, been involved in media. My dad was in television in, in, at a community level as well as at a professional level. So I was involved in helping to make community TV shows back when Channel 31 was, was in more of its infancy. When I was a, in my early teens, I started editing uh, shows for my dad and for others. And that's kind of how I learnt the ropes. And then I, I kind of walked away from, from the whole media industry when I was 18. I had my first midlife crisis when I was 18. Um, <laughs> And it, I was just sick and tired. Obviously, at the community level, you've, you've got no budget. You've very rarely got time. You're always under-resourced. Uh, and I just, I got burnt out by the whole thing. So I kind of walked away. Then uh, in my early to mid-20s, I, I was working actually a blue-collar job, driving a forklift in a warehouse, a refrigerated warehouse. And my cousin, who worked in the same place, walks in one day and says to me, oh, Tofa, which was my, my nickname, um, you should apply for Project Next. And I said, what's that? I, I don't know what that is. And so I looked into it and it was a, an Andrew Denton project. So it was the, the journalist Andrew Denton on the ABC. And, and I believe that's what became Angry Beast, I think. Um, the actual project next under that name didn't go ahead. But he was looking for sort of the next generation of journalists, be they the, the presenters, of, you know, camera presenters, be they the writers, the researchers, the producers, etc. And in order to audition for Project Next, you had to do a video. So I thought about it and thought, well, oh yeah, I'll, I'll give it a go. That sounds like a bit of fun, but it's the ABC and they are, uh, they, they do have an overall prevailing political bent. And I, I don't really want to find myself being told what I am and am not allowed to say. So I'm going to make sure that the subject of my audition video is actually something that they're probably not going to love at the ABC. And uh, therefore, if they actually say yes and give me the nod, then I know that I'm going to have the, the editorial freedom to say what I actually believe. So I did a video all about how we should be building a dam on the Mitchell River. Uh, it was opposed to, the video was opposed to the desalination plant, which is what was being built at the time down here in Victoria and has proven to be uh, a massive white elephant. And uh, so I turned around, I made a video that said, well, we shouldn't be building the desalination plant. What, what we should be doing instead is building a dam on the Mitchell River, which is down in Gippsland, which I knew wasn't going to play well to the, the sort of the soft green left uh, bias that the ABC has. Surprise, surprise, I wasn't shortlisted. I didn't get accepted for the project. And, and that may have been because of the content or it just may have been because I sucked. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, but I took the video that I'd made and I just put it on YouTube, a brand new YouTube channel. No followers, no subscribers, no nothing. I just kind of put it there and I sent the link out uh, on MySpace, if I recall correctly, back in the day. Um, 
to just a few people that I knew and they watched it and they thought it was great and they shared it. And somehow it just sort of started getting shared further and further. And uh, Andrew Bolt, a, a fairly, fairly popular media commentator uh, who at the time wasn't behind a paywall. He had a blog that was uh, free to read. He actually posted it up there and all of a sudden the views started going up in the thousands. And then I started getting phone calls from people saying, oh, Topher, we need you to tackle this issue or that issue. And, and it was just random stuff. I, I don't even know how people got my phone number, but the phone would ring and there'd just be this complete stranger at the other end saying, oh, I've seen your video. I love your work. Can you do a video about this or that? The, the one that I remember most that sticks out to me was someone asking me to come down into to, um, the Mornington Peninsula somewhere and do a video all about how the council shouldn't be building a roundabout at a particular intersection and should be building a set of traffic lights instead. And I'm like, this is surreal. This is just the weirdest, like I'm still driving a forklift in a warehouse to pay the bills. And I've got these people coming to me and, and a couple of things really sort of stood out to me in that, in that moment and with those phone calls. Number one, how desperate must people be to be reaching out to just a random stranger on the internet because they just, they're looking for any avenue, any way to get that voice out. And how bad of a job must our mainstream media be doing if there are so many people, and I was getting all sorts of different issues being brought to me, if so many people feel that their voice just isn't being heard and that they can't even get a word in edgewise. So eventually someone came to me. I said no to everybody. I just said, no, I'm not interested. This isn't what I do. I, I literally, I made an audition video for a TV show. Would you leave me alone, please? Um, until finally someone came to me with something that I just looked at and went, that is, that is just such a stupid project that you know what the government was the north south pipeline to bring water down from the irrigation districts in the north of victoria uh, and use that instead down in melbourne and i just i couldn't say no to that particular video so i, I took that on and, and that was the moment really when i took on that second video that that topher as as he exists today i guess or as, as i exist today sort of came into being according to my facebook feed your agenda is to kill people uh <laughs> so why don't we get into the nitty-gritty? Uh, you, you released a video that said that you wanted to contract coronavirus. Uh, why don't Correct. you tell us what was going through your head at the time and do you still hold the same view? What's the reasoning behind absolutely it? Absolutely, I stand by that. And, and everything that's happened since, in my view, absolutely vindicates the position that I took. So let me, let me say what that position is. The coronavirus is very dangerous to a very small demographic of people. They are specifically people over about 65 to 70 years of age who also have comorbidities. So whether that be diabetes or forms of cancer or various other things. In other words, if there are multiple things already trying to kill you, then COVID-19 is a very high risk for you. If there aren't already other things trying to kill you and you're under the age of about 70, the fatality rate from COVID-19 is very low, almost negligible almost negligible. Uh, we've, excuse me, we've had some high profile cases where some younger people have been killed by coronavirus and even one or two, and they are very few, but there have been a few cases where younger people who do not already have serious health conditions have been killed by COVID-19, but the actual number worldwide is vanishingly small. So there's an interesting opportunity there. This is, and this stands in quite significant contrast to previous pandemics. If you go back to the Spanish flu early in the, in, um, the 1900s, early in the 20th century, we find that actually an enormous number of younger people were being killed by the Spanish flu. So that characteristic of really only affecting older people is not something that we see in every pandemic, but it's certainly something that we see very clearly with this one. So that's, that's point one. 
Therefore, as we think about how do we handle a pandemic that has very high risk to a small group of people and extremely low risk to everyone else, the best way to handle any pandemic is for the development of herd immunity. This is what vaccines are all about. If we vaccinate enough people, then they will have antibodies and immunity, and therefore the, the, the virus will not be able to get a foothold and not be able to propagate itself through a given population. That's why we vaccinate. It is in pursuit of herd immunity. It is widely accepted, I would say almost universally accepted, that the best way to deal with any disease, or especially any virus, is for the population to have herd immunity. So if you put those two pieces together and you say, well, me as a younger, healthy man, I am at extremely low risk of negative health outcomes and a vanishingly small risk of death. And the only way to really protect the vulnerable is to have herd immunity across the population. Then you arrive at the conclusion that I arrived at, which is I, as a younger man, should voluntarily get infected with the virus, therefore develop herd help to develop herd immunity, obviously depending on other people to do the same thing. And therefore, the older people will actually never contract the virus at all because we will have reached that herd immunity level where let's say 65, 70% of the population actually has antibodies to, to the disease. We can reach that percentage without these older people having to be exposed in the first place, which means in the end, they can actually continue on with life once it's all over and never be exposed. So that's the logic. I, as a younger person who is healthy, can actually help to protect the older and the vulnerable if I get infected. Obviously, self-isolate, stay away from people, make sure that I'm no longer infectious before I come back out in public. But at that point, I am no longer a vector through which that disease or through which that, this virus could attack older and more vulnerable people. The problem is that Sweden tried this approach, and when I watch the news, they say, well, Sweden has failed, and do you want to be like Sweden? So what do you say to that? Yeah. So Sweden didn't try this approach. One of the things that I make very clear in my video that I released in early April, where I, I made this statement that I volunteer, one of the things that I made very clear in that video is that the elderly must be protected. This is a serious issue for the elderly and for the immunocompromised, and the Swedish government have come out and admitted that they did not do enough to keep the virus out of nursing homes, old people's homes uh, and hospitals. And they have acknowledged that a significant number of deaths arose in Sweden as a result of that. That's also the case in New York. And we'll get to that a little bit later because that's a really interesting particular case. But on Sweden, it's interesting to note that even with that failing, even with the government coming out and saying, you know what, we screwed up. We didn't actually protect the, the vulnerable people, the people that do need to be protected. We didn't protect them enough. Even so, if you compare this year's all-cause mortality in Sweden with previous years, there is only around about sort of seven, 800 excess deaths. So with all of the headlines, all of that news about how Swedish deaths were just off the charts and thousands upon thousands of people were dying and what a horrible thing it was that they didn't shut down and they should have done the same thing as the rest of us. In the end, they actually only have less than a thousand excess deaths. Now, how could that possibly be? It flies in the face of everything that we saw on the news. Well, the first thing you need to know about the media is that their job is to sell advertising to you. So they make money by collecting eyeballs and they are quite willing to um, be, let's just say, sensationalist in their pursuit of eyeballs. So they, of course, picked up the figures that said, oh, this many people are infected, that many people are dying, and they completely uncritically repeated them and propagated them out into, onto television, into, into print, and so forth. Here's the interesting thing that applies to Sweden particularly, but actually applies to the whole of Europe. Europe had a very mild flu season in, uh, the, the, over the winter of 2019 uh, into 2020. 
the number of deaths, the number of all-cause, the all-cause mortality in Sweden was down dramatically compared to previous years because they just had a really mild winter. So the flu season didn't actually kill all that many people, which means that when COVID came along, there were a, an unusually large number of people that were at death's door. We're talking, you know, the flu, it kills thousands of people in any given country every single year. Uh, and but it mostly kills people who are already very vulnerable. Funnily enough, a very similar profile to the people that COVID-19 kills. So these people, instead of having been killed by a flu earlier in that year or earlier in that flu season, were still alive, but very, very vulnerable. These are people who were within months uh, at best of death in any case. Then along came COVID-19. They failed to keep it out of their palliative care homes. They failed to keep it out of their nursing homes. They failed to keep it out of their hospitals. The Swedish government have admitted that. And so all of a sudden, we see all of these people dying. That's how you end up with a situation where lots of people have been killed by COVID-19, at least officially, and yet there are very few excess deaths as, as, a, as an average number of deaths over the year. It's actually quite normal. And now their deaths, their all-cause mortality has dropped back down to normal levels. They are no longer dealing with the COVID-19 crisis. It's over for them. They have herd immunity in Stockholm. Uh, and they are just getting on with life, opening up their, their business. One of the interesting things to note about Sweden is that their economy grew, whilst at the same time, pretty much every other country's economy was shrinking. They are not headed into a recession the way that we are. And yet, their all-cause all mortality is barely different to a normal year. So it's not been the disaster that it's been painted uh, as. The other thing to note, because it's over for them, but it's clearly not for us. I mean, here in Victoria, we're back in harsh lockdowns. Their numbers are now known. They've all of the mortality that's going to be caused, or basically all of the mortality that's going to be caused by COVID-19 for them has now been caused. For us, our final numbers are completely unknown because we, we are nowhere when it comes to herd immunity. We have, we've barely even started this journey through COVID-19 and we have no idea what our numbers are going to look like by the time it's all said and done. So we'll talk about Melbourne in a minute, but we mentioned uh, New York in passing. So what's going on there? Why are the numbers so crazy in New York? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. Italy and New York are two places where they routinely run out of intensive care unit beds every winter. And people point to Italy and say, oh, look what a disaster it was. It must have been a deadly disease because look how overrun their hospitals were. Well, guess what? Somewhere in Italy, their hospitals get overrun every single flu season. There's a good reason for that. Their healthcare system has one of the lowest ratios of, of ICU beds versus population of any developed country in the world. And in addition, they have an unusually old population. For whatever reason, people in Italy eating Italian diets and living Italian lifestyles tend to live to be a little bit older than they do in a lot of other countries. That means that a lot of them are very vulnerable to the flu when the flu season comes around. The other thing that worked against Italy, and I will get to New York in just a moment, the other thing that worked against Italy was the fact that they were one of the first countries to get hit. So no one knew how to deal with this virus. Everyone thought it was all about ventilators. You remember the whole, oh, we need to get more ventilators and Dyson were trying to build ventilators and Tesla were working on ventilators and all these companies were because ventilators were the panacea. They were the cure. Well, we've since discovered actually that's a terrible way to treat people and an extremely high percentage of people who were put under ventilators did then die. Uh, and whether they died of COVID-19 or whether they died as a result of the treatment uh, is something that no one's bothered to investigate. But the actual ratio of people dying once they went onto ventilators was extremely high. And our ability to treat this disease has improved dramatically since then. So in Italy, we have an aged population, very vulnerable to the flu, who also had a mild flu season, by the way. So already the population was kind of primed and ready for something to knock off a bunch of people that hadn't died over the previous six or so months. 
uh, an ICU situation that's already very, very bad, and they got hit very, very early and no one knew what to do. So that's what made Italy the absolute disaster that it was. In New York, we have a, a, a couple of similar factors and a few very different factors. The similar factors are that they were already very pushed in terms of the ratio of, of intensive care unit beds versus the population and the amount of sort of hospital demand that can happen there during winter. Obviously, they all live on top of each other. It's infectious diseases are a pretty big problem when people are living in these uh, tall you know, apartment buildings, sharing air conditioning and, uh, and amenities and all sorts of things like that. And every single winter is, is a pretty heavy flu time in the city of New York. But what made, what turned New York into an absolute disaster was the fear of the hospitals being overrun. You'll remember they were setting up tent hospitals. They brought in the hospital ship. They did a bunch of things to try and make sure that their hospitals weren't going to be overrun. And then in the end, those tent hospitals that they set up were all packed up again, almost unused. I'm not going to say 100% unused, but to my knowledge, they were unused. There may have been just a few uh, people that were used in those tent hospitals from time to time. The hospital ship was used. They were using that to separate out non-COVID from COVID cases and, and uh, keep all the COVID cases off the ship. So that was used. But by and large, the medical system in New York actually did cope. It was extremely strained and, and full credit to the medical professionals working under those conditions. Uh, an astonishing, astonishing effort, a feat of human endurance to, to deal with what they dealt with during that time. But here's the really interesting thing. Uh, Cuomo, Governor Cuomo, actually, in order to try and supposedly protect this overstrained medical system, was sending home elderly, symptomatic, infectious individuals back to the nursing homes that they came out of before they'd actually fully recovered, whilst they were still contagious. Now, he did that in order to preserve this intensive care unit capacity and preserve the hospital capacity and protect the health system, this mantra that we've seen from the UK to Australia to the US, you know, protect the NHS, protect the health services, whatever it is around the world. This same idea was prevalent in New York. As a result, he was sending infectious people back to live in close physical proximity with the most vulnerable people, the very people that should have been being protected. Now, this is not conspiracy theory. This is not, you know, something being discussed in the dark corners of the web. This is acknowledged. This is a fact. This is known. This is currently being investigated in the US. They were sending infectious people back into nursing homes and palliative care homes where the most vulnerable people were an enormous percentage of New York's casualties, fatalities, as a result of, of COVID-19 came from those homes. So this strategy that Cuomo used to try and reduce the demand on the healthcare system actually caused an enormous number more cases and therefore an enormous amount of additional demand on that very same healthcare system. That is why New York is such an outlier. Nowhere else in the US looks like New York does. Nowhere else in the US had a policy like what Governor Cuomo did. So that's what happened in Italy. That's what happened in New York. What are your thoughts? I mean, 3,000 people got locked up against their will in Melbourne and then Melbourne locked their borders and now you're shut down. I don't think you're allowed to essentially travel at all or what's going on there? Yeah, so today is the first day of the mask wearing mandate where we're not supposed to leave the house without a mask on or they're going to slap us with a $200 fine apparently. Uh, we're only allowed to leave the house for one of four prescribed reasons, uh, and even then you better, you better be pretty fast on your feet if you get pulled over by a cop because they are running around aggressively fining people. We're being berated constantly by the, uh, the Premier, Daniel Andrews, and uh, by the media, all about uh, berating us because apparently 90-odd uh, percent of the people that get tested for COVID-19 don't then self-isolate while they're waiting for results. 
uh, and uh, we've, we've been constantly told how disappointed Daniel Andrews is in all of us. And just the, it's, it's just such nonsense. It's absolute BS. And what, what makes this absolutely gobsmackingly insulting uh, is that out of New South Wales yesterday, we finally got some figures that we've needed for a very long time. And they are the figures, the results of antibody testing that they've been doing. So what they do is they, they're taking blood tests that have been collected for whatever reason, a lot, a lot of them from pregnant women and from other people that are having blood tests. And in addition to doing whatever they needed those, those blood tests for, they're also testing for antibodies to see if this person has been infected with COVID-19 at some point in time. Now, the crucial thing about an antibody test is that it doesn't tell you whether they're infected right now. It just tells you that they've had it at some point in time. So all of these tests that they're doing in Victoria, they're only testing to see if you have the disease right now. These other tests in New South Wales were to see if people had ever had the disease. Now, the reason why this is crucial is because it tells us how widespread the disease actually is. We've all seen the official numbers. They're all over the news every night. They're all over press conferences being called by premiers and, and health experts, etc. Every single day, they're telling us there's been this many thousand infections. I think the number for Australia is between 12 and 14,000, something like that. Well, the, according to the serology tests that have been conducted now in New South Wales, they estimate that the actual number of infections Australia-wide is between 250,000 and 500,000, not the 12 to 14,000, that is the official number. So that means that this disease is actually 20 to 40 times more common than the official figures would lead you to believe. What that means is that it is out. We're not gonna get rid of it through social distancing and shutting people down, etc. It is out in the community. Community transmission is happening writ large. People are infectious and don't know it because they don't have symptoms and they are passing it on to other people. We are not going to be able to get rid of this virus out of the community at large. That horse has bolted. The only thing that we can do is what we should have done in the very first place, and that is create a ring of protection around those most, most vulnerable people. The aged care homes, palliative care homes, hospitals, if you have friends who are immunocompromised, if you have friends who are elderly or family who is elderly, you should be supporting them to stay at home, to self-isolate, to stay away while this disease runs through the rest of the community, people like me, people like you, who are young and healthy and really at very low risk from this disease. And given the new numbers that came out yesterday from New South Wales, I think we're going to be pushed into a situation where hopefully the powers that be are going to finally start realising that this is actually their only option that this, uh, this fantasy idea that they have, that they can somehow uh, exterminate or eliminate the disease from the population is, is just fantasy. It's nothing more. So why do you think uh, at the start of this pandemic, they were saying flatten the curve, flatten the curve, the hospital system's going to be overwhelmed and then other people might die. And now it's just shifted almost seamlessly to no cases. Yeah, to this eradication strategy, although, although that's never been really disclosed. No one's ever really stood up and said, you know what, we're now trying to eradicate this from Australia. It's just kind of now that's become the new goal. The goalposts got shifted and we never got told why. Look, it's, it's hard to say. And to, to his credit, um, Scott Morrison has come out and said that eradication is not a strategy. Gladys Berejiklian did come out last week sometime and say that she's not going to re-lock down New South Wales. Uh, because the cost of lockdowns are too high and, uh, and eradication is not a strategy that's, that's viable. Whether she sticks to her word or not is going to get tested very soon because we're seeing a couple of clusters uh, happening in New South Wales. Now, remember, of course, that these are the clusters that we're detecting. Uh, and based on New South Wales' own numbers, there's an enormous amount more infection that we're not detecting. But why did the narrative shift? In Victoria, 
I think I think there's a couple of things going on. Firstly, you have to remember that politicians and public health experts have a God complex. They get into politics or they get into public health because they think that they can make better decisions than the common man. They think that they can make rules about how you live your life and what you do that are going to be better and lead to better outcomes than if you were left to your own devices to make your own decisions. So when an opportunity like this comes up where there is a new disease that's caught the eye of the media, the initial numbers out of China and out of Italy look pretty scary, they sit there and go, aha, my time has come. The world needs me. And they, in their mind, step up to this position of leadership to lead us through these dark times. And of course, as more information comes out, in the early days of any new disease, it always looks worse than it actually is. This is just a fact. When you have very little data on a new disease, that disease is almost always going to look really bad. Why? Because when people die of that disease, you know about it. You have a body that can be, an autopsy can be done on. But when people have that disease and don't have symptoms, you don't know about them. It takes a long time to start to learn about the full spread of the disease. And that's exactly what's happened here. So those early figures were really scary. Then as new information has come to light, and I've been saying this since late March, that's how many months now it's been since we had enough information to know that COVID-19 has an overall infection fatality rate of around about 0.26%, uh, which is around about a bad flu, right? A bad flu season is around about that same 0.2 to 0.3%. We knew that by late March, but by then, Politically, all of the public health figures in Australia, and at that point in time, all of the politicians in Australia, had kind of nailed their flag to this mast that the, uh, of this ship that said, this is a super scary pandemic and, and millions of people are going to die if we don't do something extreme, if we don't lock down. Once they do that, it is very difficult, it's politically very expensive for them to admit that they were wrong for them to turn around and say, hey, you know what, that's what it looked like early on, but we've got better information now. And the good news is it's not that scary. That would be politically devastating for them. And so the better option politically is to ignore that information, to ignore the good news, to stick with whatever continues to make this thing look scary uh, and to continue to, to, in effect, punish their own population, which is exactly what we're seeing in Victoria, and to keep that fear going because politically that is a less expensive outcome, at least in the short term. Now, I think that tide is turning, and I think Daniel Andrews is, is finding that his public support is waning very, very quickly amongst these, the, the middle ground. He's got his hardcore supporters, of course. Um, but amongst that middle ground, he's losing support very, very quickly from the public. And I think the Labor Party, those that are, that are actually putting their finger to the wind and seeing which way the wind of public sentiment is blowing, I think they're starting to get a little bit antsy and a little bit concerned about the implications of continued, you know, especially if he goes to level four, right now we're in level three lockdowns. If he goes to level four lockdowns, um, I, I think you can kiss Labor goodbye at the next election. And that is not something that I expected to be saying before COVID-19 happened. I, I, I was predicting to anyone that was asking me that, that the Labor Party in Victoria were going to romp it into the next election uh, until this came along and until Daniel Andrews went as hard as he has. He, he had support early on, but that's, that's definitely shifted. Is it hard for you? You've just had a, a new child. Is it is it going to be hard for you to explain to them why they have two dads, why they have yourself and Daniel Andrews? <laughs> um, yes, well, uh, he is the one who, who is not named, uh, except I, I did actually name him today. So we, we were out, we had some supplies that we needed to get. And, and because my wife is recovering from a C-section uh, and my, my newborn baby is only three weeks old and my son is four years old, uh, I don't like to leave uh, my wife with them 
alone because she doesn't have full mobility back yet. It's been a bit of a, a bit of a journey um, for her, but that's another story. So they come with me when I have to leave the house. They they have to come with me because I'm not leaving them unattended. Um, because you know, if something happens to to my wife, then then that's you know, my son obviously is four years old. He can't do anything, and mm. uh, my daughter is three weeks old. So we were all out. And uh, today, of course, we had to wear the masks. And people under twelve don't have to wear the masks, but but anyone over twelve does. So I had my my scarf pulled over my face as a mask. And let's let's talk earmark that is something to talk about in just a second. They're requiring masks, but they're allowing. Uh, masks that don't work. Let's talk about that in just a second. Um, so I had my scarf pulled over my face and my son looked at me and said, Daddy, why do you have that on your face? And the only thing that I just, I try not to be too negative towards, you know, around my son and too political around my son, but literally the words just came out of my mouth. I just said, because Daniel Andrews is an idiot. <laughs> and I just couldn't help myself. It's just like, I am walking down the street looking at all these people that have masks on their faces because Daniel Andrews is a rolled gold idiot who has rolled out a policy that does not even make sense with itself. And if you don't mind me changing subjects slightly, let me talk for a second about this mask mandate. Go for here, it. here in Victoria, you have to wear a mask. And the, the reasoning is that masks reduce the transmission rate of the disease and therefore save lives. If you don't wear a mask, you're endangering lives. You're killing grandma, right? If you don't wear a mask. But in the same policy, they say, look, if you don't have like an N95 mask or a, a surgical mask or what have you, you can wear a scarf pulled across your face. You can hand make your own masks out of t-shirt material or whatever you, you have at hand. You can have a hanky or a bandana tied around your face. All of that is fine. You just have to wear something. Well, here's the thing. Over the decades, an enormous amount of research has been done into the effectiveness of masks and what works and what does not. And guess what? Hankies are only about 2% effective. Now, an N95 mask is called an N95 mask because it is about 95% effective. Right, that, at, at stopping things from getting, uh, let me think about this for yeah. So N95s are to stop contamination from getting in. So if you're, you'd use them if you're doing woodworking or, or these sorts of things to stop things from getting into your lungs. Surgical masks are all about stopping droplets from a surgeon or, or a, a medical assistant uh, falling into an open wound whilst they're doing surgery, right? It's all about stopping infectiousness from getting out. Uh, and they're reasonably effective at doing that. Hankies are not effective. Scarves pulled across your face are not effective. Even if you fold a hanky over four times, it will only be about 18% effective. That's not 80%, that's 18% effective. Fold it over four times. And yet, you are allowed to walk around with just a hanky pulled across your face, one layer, 2% effectiveness, according to professional um, medical studies that are, that are respected around the world. Now, here's the thing. You can't have it both ways. If wearing a mask is essential to save lives, then you cannot allow people to wear masks that don't work. Your policy does not work if you allow people to wear masks that don't work. And on the flip side, if you're going to allow people to wear masks that don't work, then you shouldn't be requiring them to wear masks at all. Right? So Daniel Andrews's policy actually makes no sense in terms of its own internal logic. You cannot justify it, no matter what you believe about COVID-19 and no matter what you believe about masks, you have to say he either hasn't gone far enough and he should have mandated that everyone had to wear actual surgical masks or N95 masks at a minimum, or he should never have made the mandate in the first place. This mandate where, yes, you have to wear a mask, but you're allowed to wear pretty much anything you want and call it a mask, whether it actually does anything or not, 
is just insulting to everyone's intelligence. You've obviously put a lot of work and a lot of thought into your political commentary over the last six months, uh, the last four months, really. Uh, why is this important? I mean, you have better things to do. Why don't you just stay home and take the government subsidies, take the checks that they're giving everyone? Why does it matter that much? Uh, I wish I could. I, I wish I wish that I could live that life. Um, there is a bit of a curse that comes with uh, having a bit of historical perspective and having a bit of global perspective and seeing just how badly life can go wrong when people allow politics to go wrong. Uh, we've, we've seen numerous historical examples, but I'll, I'll put those aside for a second and just talk about the examples that I've seen firsthand. When I was seven years old, uh, my family visited Liechtenstein at the time when the lira was hyperinflating uh, and absolutely going through the floor. People were shopping uh, with, with wheelbarrows full of cash. It was, it, was, it was like Zimbabwe. I've never been to Zimbabwe, but we all kind of know what happened in Zimbabwe with their money. It was that kind of thing. Uh, when they when they changed their money into the local lira currency, they got a certain exchange rate. I don't remember what it was. Uh, and four days later, when we were leaving and they changed their money back out again, they got about half the exchange rate. It, it, the value of the currency had basically halved in a matter of a couple of days. And, and of course, it just it destroys absolutely everybody that lives in that country. When you have bad economic management that leads to this kind of outcome, it destroys absolutely everybody. On a completely different example of, of bad government uh, policies, I was recently, or a few years ago, I was in the south of China, in Guangzhou province. I was there on business. And seeing the surveillance state, the cameras that are absolutely everywhere, the active use of facial recognition, the fact that when you walk into a mobile phone shop, there is a government employee there making sure that no one is able to buy a mobile phone that isn't registered to their name so that the government knows who it is that's sending messages and receiving messages on that phone. The, the level of intrusion, the level of surveillance, the level of control that the Chinese government exercises over its people is, is frankly terrifying. And we're seeing, uh, we're seeing that playing out. I mean, I remember when we crossed over into Hong Kong, it was just amazing. It, it, it literally felt like the air was different. The, the culture was different, the people were different, the, the whole atmosphere of the place was radically different. And it's very, very sad to see Hong Kong being, uh, dare I say, abandoned uh, by, by the rest of the world to China right now. Another example of, of what happens when governments go bad and, and governments start pursuing bad political policy was very, very obvious to me when my wife and I visited Venezuela in 2014. And this for me was, was left a deep impression on me and it really left a deep impression on my wife as well. Before that, she was, she tolerated all my political activism. She, she knew that it was kind of a part of who I was and it was very important to me and she just allowed it to happen. Um, but in, in some ways, uh, since Venezuela in 2014, she's almost been more radical than me. She, she's the one really beating the drum uh, some days when I, when I sort of throw my hands up in the air and go, oh, well, screw them all if, they, if they're going to be that stupid. Uh, and she's the one who kind of says, no, this, this stuff matters. And, and because of what we saw when we were there, and we were there for a friend's wedding, and it was absolutely heartbreaking. We're watching middle-class people that have office jobs stepping off the train and rifling through dumpsters to see if they can find some discarded food to take home to their family because the money that they earn is so worthless and food is so expensive that that's actually, that's what they've been brought to. You know, stray dogs and animals, pets being eaten, just massive, massive starvation for so many people. The, the, the bankruptcy, walking through, walking through shopping malls there was just mind-blowing. 
and you could see really the political corruption because you'd walk past one shop and, for example, we walked past a Furler. Furler is a, is a high fashion brand uh, that some of your listeners no doubt will be familiar with. I wasn't really until I got married to Eddie, who's kind of into fashion, uh, my wife, Eddie. Um, but we walked past a Furler and I kid you not, I have photographs to prove it. In this entire shop, they had four pairs of sunglasses and one handbag. They couldn't restock the shelves because of the currency controls from the government that meant that they couldn't trans uh, they couldn't convert the local um, bolivar the Venezuelan currency into US dollars to be able to buy in new stock or if they could it was at such a bad exchange rate that the new stock was unaffordable then right next to that to that furler shop literally the very next shop was another brand that I whose name I don't recall but again I, I do have the photos and their stores were fully stocked their shelves were fully stocked and what you knew was that the owner of that brand had political connections where he could exchange his money into American dollars at a much better rate than the owner of the further store could, which meant that he could bring in new stock and restock the shelves of this store. And just the political corruption and the political connections were just right there in front of you. And it, the economy had long since ceased to be about doing something that your fellow man would appreciate. It was no longer about the market rewarding you because if you offered a good product or a good service, then people would come and give you money. It was now about sucking up to the government and making sure that the government was on your side because there was just no chance of you surviving any other way. The, the political situation there, everything. We, we talked to a lot of people while we were there and we would, we would often find ourselves asking the question, what happened? Because the, the decay was just so visually obvious. You could just see it everywhere. You could see that Venezuela used to be a wealthy country. It was in the top 10 wealthiest countries in the world. If you go back to the 40s and 50s before all of this happened. Um, it, it sits on the largest proven oil reserves in the world. Bigger than Iran, bigger than Iraq, bigger than Russia. It's, it has a, a wealth of uh, emeralds and other precious stones available to be mined. It has massive salt mines that, that are very, very lucrative. It has a beautiful tropical growing climate where they could have incredible food production. And yet these guys are starving, literally. How the hell did that happen? And so I would ask people, I'd say, what happened? And it, it was really, really disturbing how often they would just look at you and just say, socialismo, as though that was just the complete sentence of socialism. That's literally what they were saying. And, and for them, they knew it because they'd seen it and they'd lived it. They knew what it was like before and they knew what it was like after. They knew that the, transfer, the transition from a capitalist society into a socialist society was what had completely destroyed their country. Now, unfortunately, things have gotten even worse since we visited in 2014. And one of the people that I met, uh, a relative of his, had a daughter who was, uh, who was pregnant and, and expecting to have a baby soon. And the, the Venezuelan medical system has completely run out of money and completely run out of supplies. And so in order to make sure that there, was, there were basic medical supplies available for his daughter in the event that she needed a, a, a cesarean section, a C-section, he, the dad, sold up everything that he could and then traveled for three weeks, oh, sorry, gathered up everything that he could and traveled for three weeks to get to the Colombian border to then sell everything in Colombia and buy there on the Colombian border a basically a, a C-section kit that includes you know, your various um, surgical blades and bandages and other things like that, to then put in his backpack and travel three weeks back home into Venezuela so that if his daughter had trouble giving birth and needed a C-section, she would get clean razor blades. She wouldn't get secondhand ones. She would get new bandages instead of secondhand ones because that 
without that kit, she would have been getting whatever they had to hand and it's all used, it's all blunt, it's all secondhand, it's, it, it's horrific what that country has now become and, and the, the conditions that those people now have to live in. And it is all a consequence of bad policy. And this is why I get so fired up about it. This is why I can't ignore it. When governments have bad ideas and pursue bad policies, it has real world consequences. You might want to ignore politics and believe me, I want to ignore politics, but politicians are never going to ignore you. They are going to apply their rules to you, whether you like it or not. They are going to pursue their agendas, whether you like it or not, and you are going to suffer the consequences of their ideas and their policies, whether you like it or not, and whether you deserve it or not. The people of Venezuela did not deserve the consequences of socialism. The, 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 a, a very large minority, more than 40% of them, didn't even want the socialists in power. But because a small majority did vote for Chavez, uh, and brought him in. And ever since then, you know, Chavez consolidated power, brought in socialist policies. He died. Maduro has taken over. He's continued those policies. 100% of, po of the population suffers the consequences of those policies, even though a huge percentage of them, literally millions upon millions of people, never wanted it in the first place. And so that, unfortunately for me, is why I can't just ignore what's going on get on with my life and, and pursue the things that I would frankly rather be doing. What would you tell people then? What action can people take uh, given our current circumstances to actually better Australia's future? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. One that I'm not sure that I have a really compelling answer for just at the minute. My, my short answer, and it's a little bit glib, but, but there is power in it, is that people actually just have to get politically engaged. At the moment, Australia, Australians almost pride themselves on their kind of she'll be right attitude. And I'm sorry, but she's not going to be all right. Not the way we're going. Let me paint a picture for you. In Australia right now, more than half of all Australian households, and this is pre-COVID, so it's gotten way worse since COVID, more than half of all Australian households are dependent on some kind of government payment in order to make ends meet, Right. Now, what that means, once you have more than half of the households dependent on government welfare, what that means is that it's very difficult to cut back on welfare in future. Because if a politician stands up and says, hey, uh, we need to get the budget under control, we're heading towards bankruptcy, we're going to go down the path of Venezuela or Zimbabwe, where we're going to be printing our own currency and hyperinflating and running out of resources for our schools and our hospitals and everything else. Well, that's where we're going and we, that's a disaster, so let's not go there. That politician is never going to get a majority of the votes. Why? because the majority of the voters in the short term are dependent on that government handout to make ends meet. And that's, we've already crossed that threshold in Australia. We've already reached the point where, where more than 50% of households are dependent in order to make ends meet on a monthly or a, or a quarterly basis uh, to, to be able to pay their bills. That's a terrifying situation to be in. And unless more people start to get politically active and more people start talking about this stuff, then people are going to, the, the, the majority of Australians are going to sleepwalk into the same outcome that Venezuelans sleepwalked into. We're going to sleepwalk into a, an unsustainable economic situation where the government's debt is just going to keep growing until the point where all of a sudden our, our little tricks and techniques to keep the economy going, whether it's quantitative easing or government sort of stimulus handouts and these sorts of things, they become less and less effective as you use them more and more. And eventually they stop working altogether. And at that point we have a reckoning. We finally have to deal with the consequences of our own reckless economic mismanagement. And I've seen what that, I've literally seen what that looks like. I saw it in Liechtenstein. I saw it in Venezuela. It is hella ugly. And you've got to know, 
there is nothing about us that makes us immune to that. Now, we're nowhere near there yet, right? I'm not, I'm not saying this is about to happen, but my fear is that we've crossed a threshold where it has become inevitable unless enough people recognize the danger and become willing to actually accept some short-term pain in the form of a reduction in how much welfare they are receiving from the government uh, and accept that short-term pain for the benefit of the country long-term. Now, that's a, that's a real communications challenge, right? Getting people to forego short-term cash in their pocket, uh, that's a hard sell, right? And we're not going to be able to convince enough people unless a lot more people get engaged politically. Things like what you're doing with this podcast and what you did with the documentary that you made, things like what I've been doing for the last 12 years with my, my Facebook page and the videos that I do, etc. Uh, so there are a lot of people who are working on this. There are media commentators that are working on this, trying to raise the alarm, trying to make people realize where we're headed. And yes, the train is a very, very long way away from that destination, but there is no question that that is the direction our tracks are taking us in. And, and turning that around is going to take a, a lot of people. It's going to literally take a majority of people to become willing to vote for and in fact to start demanding greater financial responsibility, but also not just financial responsibility, uh, greater accountability from the government, less intrusion into our lives, less regulation over every aspect of our lives, all the things that reduce our economic output, reduce our quality of living, uh, and actually make it harder for, for the country to remain financially sustainable. So there's, there's sort of the two sides of it. There's the government's own economic management, but there's also the government's meddling in the private world, which then reduces our economic output. And both of those things are leading us towards disaster and will continue to do so unless a lot more people start making noise. Yeah, or if someone like Andrew Cooper creates John Galt's uh, island, we can all move there. Maybe just me and you yeah, and some other. I'm, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I need a few more decades to get there, but I'm working on it. Make sure you give me an invite. <laughs> no worries. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Is there anything else that you'd, you'd like to add? There's, is there any hope uh, for the water mismanagement issue? What's the update there? Unfortunately, that does continue. And because of COVID, the, the focus has really been taken away from that. Um, and and it's, it's proving very difficult to get much traction on that issue right now. And the mismanagement continues. Just last week, we saw a report come out saying that the ACT have failed to actually um, meet their own obligations for water savings, water efficiency measures that were supposed to then um, provide water for the environment. And I'm, I'm doing air quotes with my fingers as I say that. Uh, and anyone who's watched my videos on this topic will understand why. Uh, but they actually failed to meet those obligations. So what did they do? They went on the water market and spent taxpayers' money and bought up a bunch of water out of New South Wales to then send down the river to the environment. So now we have a triple whammy. Not only have they failed to deliver the efficiencies, and efficiency is always a good thing, whether, whether, it goes, whether the upside of it goes to the environment or goes to the economy or what have you, efficiency is always a good thing. So we don't have the efficiency. On top of that, they're spending taxpayers' money on top of that, they're spending taxpayers' money to buy up water that could have been used to grow food and create economic activity and instead sending it down the river uh, and using it to grow grass and, and breed frogs. So we've copped an absolute triple whammy from, from just the negligent um, policy behaviour of, of the ACT government and their failure to meet their obligations under the plan. Uh, so unfortunately, no, I, I, I wish I could say that we're about to see a turnaround. John Barillaro in the New South Wales government has made lots of the right noises, but when you actually look at his voting patterns, he doesn't follow through. Uh, he actually votes with the, the National Party, who you would think would be on the farmer's side, but clearly they are not, and they have not been for, for some years now. And the only solution really, I think, is for farmers and for country communities to absolutely desert the National Party. 
to to absolutely decimate them. And we have seen some sign of that in the, the previous New South Wales election. We saw the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, uh, the One Nation Party and a couple of other independents really do very, very well. Uh, as a result of people moving away from the nationals. But that wasn't followed through at the subsequent federal election. And what we need to see at a federal level is for the nationals party to get abs- to get their butt absolutely handed to them by the electorate. And for shooters, fishers, farmers, One Nation, uh, other independents, uh, Liberal Democrats, these, these are parties that understand this issue. There are micro parties that understand this issue and they're on the right side of this issue. Uh, and we need to see more of them sitting in government uh, and a lot less of the Liberals and a lot less of the Nationals and, frankly, a lot less of Labor because this is a this is a disaster that has been unfolding since 2007 and Liberal governments and Labor governments uh, and Liberals, obviously, with the support of the Nationals and Labor with the support of the Greens have all been complicit in continuing and perpetuating this absolute disaster. So I think the only real hope now is to see the, um, the, the, the rage maintained all the way through to the next federal election and to see a lot of voters desert the National Party and punish the the politicians for their for their lies. Quite frankly, the way they've made promises and said that they were going to do things and then never have, that is really the only way forward that I can see from where we now are. And where can people learn more about you? Uh, the best places are on Facebook, facebook.com uh, forward slash Topher Field, T O P H E R F I E L D. Um, I do have a blog that I haven't posted on since I think 2017. I'm thinking about resurrecting it if enough people are interested, but at the moment that's pretty inactive. So the best place really is just to, uh, to follow me on Facebook. You'll see all of my various ramblings there. I post a lot of links to external content. Uh, I, I always like to reference and resource my sources, etc. So you'll see a lot of external links going up on my page there, keeping you up to date with things that you're not necessarily going to see in the mainstream media, but are relevant to the world that we live in today. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, I guess we'll see you in a couple of weeks time. Indeed, Randall. Thank you so much. So what do you think, guys? Should we all get coronavirus? Should we all sneeze on each other? I don't know, man. My wife is the only one who takes my breath away. I don't think coronavirus could do the same thing. Make sure you follow us on uh, political deactivist.com. That's uh, blah, 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 dot com. No, politicaldeactivist.com. You can see all of our blog posts and stats and things like that. Or facebook.com forward slash political deactivist to follow all of our amazingly dank memes. And as always, if you like what you heard, send it to a friend. And if you didn't, send it to an enemy. We'll see you next time.